following Jesus on his travels. And we've seen that due to the miracles that Jesus was doing, he had a crowd following him around. And for instance, in chapter 3, 7 to 12, we read that um, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to see him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions uh, across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with, with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone who he was. And the previous chapter before the passage that we look at tonight, chapter 4, we read that Jesus and his disciples indeed used this boat to get away from the crowd. And then, after freeing the demon-possessed man in the beginning of our chapter for tonight, um, on the other side of the lake, the locals then pleaded with him to leave. Maybe they were intimidated by the power that he displayed over the demons. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they were annoyed at losing a large herd. Anyway, they wanted Jesus to leave. So once again, Jesus and the disciples crossed the lake, this time back to the side that they had originally fled to get away from the crowd. And then in our passage... On the original side of the lake, if you like, you have two interwoven events, the healing of the woman and the raising from the dead of Jairus' daughter. And we will see as we go through the passage that they are indeed interwoven for a reason. So we first of all see that when Jesus gets back to the side of the lake he started off from, that again the crowd is there. It might be the same people who were still hanging around. It might be that they regathered when they heard that Jesus was back. But it's, it's fair to assume that they are at very least a, a very similar kind of crowd to the ones that Jesus and the disciples left behind earlier. And they are a crowd looking for miracles, looking for healing. Maybe also looking for a bit of excitement and entertainment. There was no Facebook, no television. So you had to take the uh, enjoyment where it came. And someone traveling around and doing miracles, doing exciting stuff, that obviously is a reason to go and check it out. And crowds gathered. Now among the crowds we see is... Jairus, who is there for a very specific purpose, he's just not checking out the exciting things that are happening, but he has gone from his home with a very pressing need. Now we read that Jairus is a synagogue ruler or synagogue president. So he was one of the people responsible for arranging the services, for managing the building. So he was quite an important man. He would have been a very well 
respected man in the community as well. And his young daughter is dying and he has rushed to where Jesus is to come and seek his help. And the way that he phrases this request for help is significant. He says, come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. He doesn't say, well, maybe you could come and have a look and see what you can do. No, he says, you come and if you lay your hands on her, she will live, she will be healed. He has a very strong conviction that Jesus would do that for him or for her. Now the crowd that he was part of, in a sense, that he stepped out from, could only understand so much of what Jesus was doing and what was going on. For we read earlier, or we did tonight, but we've seen earlier in 433, it says, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, i.e. the crowd, as much as they could understand. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. But as we will see, even the disciples' understanding was limited. So with the crowd, he spoke in parables, sort of the illustrations, the metaphors, was all that they could understand. And the disciples, if you like, got private tuition later on. It was explained to them. But even there, there were limitations. But in Jairus here, we have an individual in need who stepped out from the crowd who is very specific about the kind of help that he would like to receive. And he asks about this help without any dithering, without wavering, without hesitation. If you come and lay hands on her, my daughter will live. He is pleading for help from one that he is convinced can indeed help. And Jesus went with him and the crowd follows to see what's going to happen. And I'm sure as far as they were concerned, the show got even more interesting now that the high-profile synagogue ruler was involved. So certainly they all wanted to come to check out what was going to happen now. And we read that amongst that crowd was a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, according to uh, Old Testament law, that was not just a biological problem, but it went beyond that. It would have made her what they called ceremonially unclean. But if you just want to go back with me to the Old Testament, Leviticus 15, we can read two verses there that give us a little bit of background as to the extent of the problems that this lady had. <coughs> so Leviticus 15, in verse 25, it says, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. And then going ahead a little bit, same chapter, verse 31. Moses gets told, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, 
which is among them. So it, may, it means two things. It means she cannot take part in any religious ceremonies, in any religious activities. And it also means that she is cut off from the people around her because this uncleanliness could be transferred if she were to touch someone or someone were to touch her or someone were to touch something that she had touched. So in a sense, it follows on to other people. So she is cut off in two ways. First and foremost, she is cut off from God because of her uncleanliness and therefore inability to take part in anything to do with the Jewish faith. And she is cut off from the people around her. So not only does she suffer a serious medical condition for 12 years, a very long time, but she also had to contend with the consequences of being ceremonially unclean for all this time, for all these 12 years. They were religious and they were social, these consequences. Anything and anyone she touched would also become unclean. So people would avoid her, would expect her to stay away from them. She was an outcast. So it's no wonder then that she had tried any possible solution that there might be on offer, any remedy, any healer. But any treatment that she sought at considerable financial cost just made things worse and caused further suffering. Now we sometimes like to complain about the NHS and their waiting lists and maybe you don't get exactly the kind of treatment when you wanted it uh, and that you wanted, but uh, you get treated by highly trained professionals who on the whole know very well what they're doing. They're not going to make things worse in general and they're not going to charge you for it. You're not going to be financially ruined at the end and just have been put through further suffering. That was the situation that the lady was in. So just like the demon-possessed man in the beginning of the chapter, she was beyond any human hope, beyond any human help. But just like Jairus, she had heard of Jesus and she makes her way up behind him through the crowd. Now she would have been expected to, if she would go to gatherings at all, to stay nicely at the back where the crowd was thinner, where she could just sort of shy away in a corner and touch no one and not be touched by anyone, not defile anyone else. So to work her way through the crowd was a risky maneuver. She would touch people making her way to the front if people were to recognize her and realize who she was and, oh, I know what's wrong with her. She's bleeding all the time. She's unclean. She shouldn't be touching me. She shouldn't be in this crowd. What are you doing here, woman? She took a risk working her way to the front and when she finally got there, she touched Jesus, thinking it said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. A very similar level of expectation to Jairus, who said, if Jesus only touches my daughter, she will be healed. 
and the woman knows, if I touch Jesus, I will be healed. There's no doubt there, no qualifications of any sort. It will happen. And it does. It does happen. She touches Jesus and immediately feels in her body something has changed. The problem has been solved. It's disappeared. She has been healed. Not only does she realize that something has happened, Jesus realizes as well. He realizes that power has gone out from him. And he turns around and asks, who touched my clothes? And the disciples are a bit incredulous. From what You're in a crowd here. Everyone is jostling. Everyone is pushing. There's people everywhere bumping into you all the time. And then you're asked, who touches you? So, it tells us something about the disciples at this point as well. It shows their limited understanding of who exactly Jesus was. <coughs> if you realize that you're talking to God, then you wouldn't sort of question him, you wouldn't doubt him, you wouldn't be a little bit skeptical about what he's saying. You would be flat on your face and you would worship him. But they're quite okay with sort of challenging the foolish thing that he has said. Now these were people that had answered Jesus' call. He said, follow me, and they just dropped everything they were doing. They realized there was something about Jesus. They realized that this calling meant something. And they were willing to leave family, home, and jobs behind, at least for a time, to be with Jesus, to follow him. And let's not belittle that. That is a remarkable level of commitment. Just imagine if you wanted to join this church or be baptized and you had a chat with Tim and the elders and they said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We do want you to uh, drop your career though, sell your house, leave your family, move in with Tim. Uh, We want you to make these kind of changes and then you can join our church. I don't think many of us would be willing to make that level of commitment. These people, these disciples, have. But still, they are questioning Jesus. They would have felt, I presume, an understandable sense of urgency to get to Jairus' house. After all, his daughter is critically ill. He said she's dying, so they need to get there quickly. Maybe it played in the back of their minds that Jairus was an important man. He was one of the presidents of the synagogue and they were just dealing with this woman. So maybe it was time to move on. Doesn't Jesus understand that they're in a hurry? That there is time pressure here? And yet there he is. He's asking these pointless questions of who has touched me when everyone is bumping into him. If they fully realized who Jesus was, they would, of course, never speak like this. And in one way, it is not dissimilar to the situation with Peter when he makes his great confession in Matthew 16. There Jesus, first of all, asked his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, they say this and they say that. And then he focused a bit more in on the disciples and says, well, who do you think that I am 
And then Peter replied with this monumental confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. An enormous statement. Yet, not soon afterwards, he feels quite entitled to rebuke Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I will die there. He says, no, 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 that will never happen to you. So on the one hand, this flash of insight given to him by the Father, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the next moment calling him back and saying, look, that's ridiculous, you're not going to die. You're the Son of God after all. Not dissimilar to what is happening here with the disciples. And it's something that we see throughout the Gospels, an unfolding story of faith versus ignorance, a conflict between the kingdom of God and an unbelieving world. This kingdom of God with Jesus is bursting into the world, but it's a world largely of unbelief, of skepticism, a world that's quite interesting in sort of this traveling spiritual circus where all kinds of exciting things happen. But there's only a fair few individuals who want to truly inquire as to who he is. And even those who made quite a significant commitment like the disciples have, they are struggling with unbelief and ignorance. And maybe we should sometimes ask ourselves, are we ever struggling with these things? We've committed to Jesus, we've committed to the church, but maybe sometimes we have similar kind of struggles as well. Faith on the one hand, ignorance, unbelief, maybe my own stubborn human nature on the other hand. But Jesus knows that although, yes, he is on his way to help Jairus and his daughter, he has now encountered someone else who needs his help. Jesus isn't just sort of wandering around the Galilean countryside until it is time to go to Jerusalem for sort of the ultimate end and the sacrifice and his death on the cross. He is doing the Father's will every step of the way. And this woman has been put in his path as much as Jairus has. And yes, the healing has taken place. We've read that as soon as the woman touched him. She noticed that her medical problem had disappeared and Jesus was aware that that had happened as well. So the healing is done, is finished. But he isn't quite finished with the woman. There is more to happen. So despite the criticism of the disciples, what on earth are you talking about? Everyone is touching you. He looks around and knows that there's one who's touched him with a very special intent. And then the woman comes forward and trembling and afraid tells him everything. So presumably that includes the story of her 12 years illness. It includes the fact that she touched him and she really, according to Old Testament laws, shouldn't have. She had faith to initially come forward. She had faith to touch Jesus. And Jesus commends her faith. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. But it goes further. He then says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. 
Now, go in peace was a normal Jewish farewell in those days, and um, presumably it's just like our kind of greetings and well wishes. It didn't really mean very much. After all, normal people couldn't give peace to other people. So it was a pious thought or a hopeful expectation at the very best. But with Jesus, we realize it's different. Here is the man and the Son of God who can indeed give peace. With him, it isn't just a hopeful greeting at best or empty words at worst. Here is someone who gives her peace. She is freed from her suffering, he says. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And the suffering doesn't just refer to the medical problem, the disease, the healing has already been mentioned. That's done, that's ticked off. But let's not forget the consequences that the medical problem had for her, the being a social and religious outcast. But now she is not just restored to fellowship with people around her. People won't shun her anymore. She doesn't need to stay away from people and be very careful that she doesn't touch them anymore. But she's also restored to fellowship with God. And that is the peace that Jesus is talking about. That is the peace that he has given her. And that's the reason why he needed to stop and talk to her. The healing had already happened. He didn't need to do that anymore. It was done. But the much more important restoration to full spiritual health, that happened now. So there was a very good reason for him to stop and talk to her. Now Mark doesn't actually talk about Jairus' mental state during this uh, sort of discussion with the woman. But we can all probably imagine that uh, at the very least he would have felt anxious and impatient. Now, I don't know about you and patience. I would love to say that I'm a very patient person, but with my wife and son here, I probably couldn't quite get away with that. I can be quite impatient. I can get irritated when things don't work as fast as I want or students in school don't work as fast as I want them to work. So I go stand behind them and say, come on, can I move on? And that's really fairly trivial things. If they take five minutes more over the question, yes, so what? But I still get sort of impatient and want them to move on. Now, Jairus' situation wasn't something trivial. It was something absolutely crucial. His daughter, his little girl, was back there at home dying. And here we are, here we have this delay, a delay Fair enough, the woman needs help, but let's be honest, she's had this problem for 12 years. She could bear it for another half hour, couldn't she? Whereas my daughter, well, I don't know, she needs help and she needs it now. Why aren't we moving on? You can quite see sort of those kind of thoughts going through his head. And then the messengers arrive with the terrible news. Well, it's too late. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Teacher can't do anything anymore. It's too late. Maybe if he would have gotten there in time, he could have healed her, but she's dead. Forget about it. But Jesus then says to him, don't be afraid, just believe. 
Well, he did believe, didn't he? That's why he came to Jesus. He came to Jesus with this very strong conviction. If only Jesus would come and touch her, she would be better. She would be healed. The disease would go. That was the faith that he had. But now it goes an awful lot further, doesn't it? Because the girl has died. We're not talking about healing anymore. So would his faith hold after the worst had happened? Would it stretch that much further to still trust Jesus to help him and to save his daughter? Now from that point onwards, Jesus only allows three of the disciples in Jairus to go with him. The crowd is now excluded. And when they get to Jairus' home, the whole situation is confirmed with all the commotion and the presence of the mourners there. In those days, you would hire, if someone had died in your family, you would hire professional mourners. That was the done thing. And even poorer families would be expected to have at least a few people there. At the very least, two flute players and a woman sort of chanting and singing and wailing was what you would expect, as a minimum. Now, Jairus' family presumably wasn't poor. He was an influential man, so the group of mourners would have been much, much bigger. That's why all this commotion is going on. And Jesus tells them, well, the child isn't dead but asleep. And it says they laugh at him. Literally, they ridicule him. We all know she's dead. Why do you say she's asleep? You've got to be kidding me. A little bit like the disciples who were a bit skeptical when he said, who touched me? Now, we shouldn't take this fact that Jesus said she isn't dead, she's asleep, to mean that the girl is indeed not dead, that she is in some sort of coma or a similar kind of situation. We are, from the text, very clearly to understand that, yes, the girl had died. That's what the messengers very clearly told Jairus. She was dead. And the presence of the mourners confirmed that. Everyone knew the girl had died. But sleep is used in the Bible on occasion as a a euphemism for death. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Awake or asleep obviously refers to the living and the dead. In Ephesians chapter 5, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So sleeper is a word used there to describe someone who is dead. So the fact that Jesus uses that word doesn't mean that the girl was merely in a coma or something, It means, it implies that death, like sleep, isn't a permanent state. There is a life after death. So the mourners, like the crowd, also get excluded. They get sent away, and Jesus touches her, like the woman earlier touched him, and tells the girl to get up, and she does. So Jairus' faith is confirmed when he first sought help of Jesus. He believed that if only Jesus would touch his daughter, she would be fine, she would be healed, there would be no issue. And now he had seen the much greater event of Jesus' touch 
and words bringing his little girl back from the dead. Jesus then tells the parents not to let anyone know about this. Now we need to think about that a little bit because it's going to be fairly obvious that the story would get out later. Yeah, firstly, it was an important family. The whole crowd was there when Jairus said, I need your help, my daughter is dying. The crowd was there when the messengers arrived and said that the girl was dead. The mourners, the professional mourners and family and friends and neighbors, they were all there outside the house knowing the girl had died. So to say, don't tell anyone about this, initially it might seem a little bit impractical. What are you going to do with the girl? You're going to sort of keep her locked up in her bedroom the rest of her life so that no one sees that she's alive? Well, that's obviously not what Jesus meant. But they are not to go out whilst Jesus is still there and sensationalize it by shouting out to the crowds, he did it, she's alive. And again, sort of have this circus experience that the crowds are seeking. The crowds originally were excluded for a reason. They are looking for a miracle worker. Jesus is looking for faith, and he uses miracles to nurture and develop it. So miracles are there for a purpose. The miracles are never the purpose. We shouldn't seek all kinds of miracles happening around the church in Pelsol so that finally the whole village believes. No, we should seek to share the gospel. And if the Holy Spirit chooses to confirm that with miracles, well, that would be wonderful. But the miracles should have a purpose. Jesus isn't there to impress. He is there to impact on the lives of people. And then the passage ends on what seems like a very anticlimactic note. He told them to give her something to eat. Very practical, yes, certainly. But why on earth would he say that? He had just done this great miracle. He had brought the girl back from the dead. There had been this sort of very exciting exchange and and, and leading up to what he did. Everyone had heard that Jairus had called on him for help and then there was the delay and then there were the messengers who said, you're too late, she is dead. And he says, no, 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 it'll be okay, just have faith. And now the girl is alive. Okay, he had excluded the crowds, but at the very least, you would have said, well, I want a rousing sermon now for the parents who are there to really sort of bring it home to them. Everyone, it says, was completely astonished So surely that's the time to make the most of the opportunity, give this sermon, whip up some support, make the most of the occasion. We probably would, wouldn't we? It's not the time to say, hey, give her a bite to eat. Sort of kind of a letdown, that seems to be. But no further purpose would be served by any of these things. He had accomplished what his father wanted him to do on this occasion. He showed God's love in a very practical way. He nurtured faith where he found it. So instead, just points out the down-to-earth practical need that the girl has. She'd been severely ill 
presumably for some time, probably didn't feel like eating very much, so she would be weak. So he sees a need in her life, very practical, and says, hey, give the girl a bite to eat. So in conclusion, what we see in this passage is that Jesus is concerned with people. Sometimes he teaches the crowd, lots and lots of people, but the crowd indeed consists of people. But when people, when we are in a crowd, they are fickle, easily led, easily manipulated, looking for entertainment. Just think of the kind of things that you do in a crowd. You go and watch a football match or a concert or slightly smaller crowds. You go to watch a film. You want to be entertained. You don't want to have a serious one-to-one discussion and take your friend to the football match to have that conversation. You want entertainment. But true encounters with Jesus are one-to-one. We need to stand before him. We need to pray to him. It's one-to-one. Yes, you can, of course, pray in the church and we pray for one another. But ultimately, we... Each one of us needs to have these encounters with him, where faith gets challenged, where we maybe take a risk like the woman did. The crowd could have turned nasty against her if they would have realized who she was, who was sort of elbowing and pushing her way forward. Maybe take a risk, go to the front of the crowd and seek out Jesus for ourselves. We don't need to think that our faith needs to be perfect. We've seen the limitations with the disciples. Only in the previous chapter, they panicked when they were in a boat with Jesus and got into a storm. And Jesus calmed the storm and said, well, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Despite all kinds of things that they had seen Jesus do. So they weren't perfect. But he didn't abandon them. He didn't say, oh, well, my recruitment process wasn't quite thorough enough. I got into a bunch of disciples here that are very dilly-dallying, very wavering, no commitment at all. I'm just going to let this lot go and have a stricter round of interviews, have a second look at the CVs, and start over again with people who are a bit more committed, have a bit more faith. No, he bore with them. He was quite happy for them to continue with him. And he would continue teaching them and working with them. And yes, they were human. They had their weaknesses just like we all have. We can stand before Jesus without great strong faith. We can stand there with all our weaknesses and all our shortcomings. But sometimes Jesus does let things happen in our lives. Let's not forget that this woman suffered for 12 years. That's quite a long period. Jairus must have gone through some very disturbing emotions when he heard that his girl was dead. Didn't last as long as for the woman, but still must have been very, very difficult. He does let things happen in our lives. Things we don't understand, things we find hard. But he knows us. He knows how much or how little faith we have. 
And he works in our lives to confirm that faith, to nurture it, to strengthen it, but also to stretch and expand it. We have to ask ourselves, well, do we have the kind of courage that the woman had to have these kind of encounters? Are we willing to risk things, have a deeper level of commitment than we have previously shown? Are we willing to come out of the crowds and work our way to the front and stand in front of him and tell him everything that's going on, like the woman did? Pour it all out and say, these are my problems. Do we have the courage to do that? Or do we think, oh, well, maybe Jesus isn't bothered. Well, look at the Psalms, look at the people there pouring it all out. We can stand before him and we can trust him to do his will in our lives and with our lives. Amen. We'll close by singing, by faith we see the hand of God.